You know, you don't have to be a Christian long. Um, in fact, you don't really have to be a Christian at all before you've heard of the, the author, C.S. Lewis. I mean, who hasn't heard of the Chronicles of Narnia? I, in fact, I'd even guess that most of you, if you've gone to public school, have read at least some of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, right? I mean, C.S. Lewis is known for, more than anything else, the Chronicles of Narnia. But his second most popular writing is, is a work by the name of Mere Christianity, where C.S. Lewis lays out what he believes to be the, the foundations of the Christian faith. And probably one of the most quoted paragraphs in Miss, Miss, sorry, Mere Christianity addresses the impossibility that we can simply dismiss Jesus as a good moral teacher. It reads... I'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is one thing that we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who says that he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. And you can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him. You can kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Though I can't be certain, I think that C.S. Lewis had the passage that we're going to look at today in mind when he wrote those words. Today we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35. The gospel of God that Jesus is proclaiming is more than moralistic living. Jesus didn't come just to be some sort of altruistic or benevolent example for us to just follow in his footsteps. His message forces us to come to certain conclusions about him. Either he's a lunatic, or he's a liar from hell, or Jesus really is Lord. And we are left with no other options. So turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 35, and that's pages, page 838 there in the Bibles in the chairs, and I hope you'll read along with us. It says, Then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again, so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they came out to seize him, for they were saying, He's out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And, they, and he called to them, and he said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying that he is an unclean spirit. 
And his mother and his brothers came, and they were standing outside, and they sent to him, and they called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we just sang hallelujah. Praise the Lord. God, I I pray that as we sit here and we reflect on Jesus' message to us, that we would be convinced of that. That it wouldn't just be a word that comes off of our tongues, but it would be a praise that comes out of our hearts. May we truly, with our whole being, Sing hallelujah. Praise the Lord. It's in his name we pray. Amen. The first response that we can make to Jesus is that he's a lunatic. We see this in Jesus' family. That's what they're doing in verses 20 and 21. They thought that Jesus was out of his mind. Now, you got to give him credit. It would have had to have been weird growing up with Jesus. I mean, think about that. That would be just strange. I mean, his life begins with an angel appearing to his young virgin mother saying, guess what? You are going to have a son by the, conceived by the Holy Spirit, and this is going to be the Son of God. He's going to save people from their sins. Uh, that's, that's normal. That happens all the time, right? No problem. Um, next... The angel then appears to Jesus' adopted father, Joseph, and says basically the same thing. I mean, Joseph is getting ready to divorce her, and and this angel appears and says, Hey, listen, don't worry, Mary's not a loose woman. She's not. This kid that's inside her, this has conceived of the Holy Spirit. You're going to name, he's going to be a boy, and you're going to name him Jesus, because he is going to save his people from their sins. As Jesus continued to grow, according to Mark chapter 6, Joseph and Mary had other children. They had other children. So much for the perpetual virginity of Mary, right? James, Joseph, Judas or Jude, Simon, and a handful of daughters, all of them. I mean, think about being a brother or sister to Jesus, you know? I mean, we might have siblings that we think are perfect, or worse yet, we have siblings who think they are perfect. But it's a different thing when your sibling is actually perfect. I mean, could you imagine that? You go up and, you know, Joseph and Mary are sitting there. Okay, James, what did you do? And he's like, I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Jesus is like, yes, you did. (laughs) You did. (laughs) I mean, it would just be rough. It would be rough. I mean, no wonder these guys thought he was out of his mind. They wanted to believe that, right? Um, But you keep on going. I mean, when he's 12, he's there and he's, he's there for his bar mitzvah. You know, he's... And he's there, and he's instructing all the priests that were there. He's teaching them. He's, even then, he's about his father's business. And as an adult, they knew that there was something different about him. I mean, he, he goes to this wedding, much like we did yesterday, and they ran out of wine. And so Mary comes up to Jesus, and she says, hey, you need to do something about this. I mean, she recognized that, that he had certain powers and abilities, and he turned the water into wine. But then the next thing they know, Jesus... He leaves Nazareth. He leaves Galilee. He moves in, well, he didn't leave Galilee. He moved into Capernaum and begins traveling throughout the region of Galilee 
with a message. He's preaching and teaching and, and doing all these things. And, and they were receiving word that these huge crowds were gathering around him. And they were just astonished by all that he was saying and all that he was doing. He was teaching with, with authority, not like the scribes. He was, he was healing people from sicknesses and disease and, and their disabilities. He was casting out demons and all this amazing stuff. They're like, what is this that's going on? And that was one thing. But then they also started hearing another message and that what Jesus was doing was actually starting to be opposed by the religious leaders of the day. They were being stirred against Him. Well, this is a whole other thing. When the religious leaders start to become hostile of your son, I mean, what is this? What's happening here? Jesus is proclaiming that He has the ability to forgive sins. He's proclaiming that He is Lord of the Sabbath, meaning that He has authority over Old Testament law. I mean, this is a big deal. I mean, what is going on here? No, he's, going to, he's going crazy. And the, this, the, this uh, conflict is so bad that the religious leaders are ready to kill Him. I mean, they're actually planning to destroy Him. And so on top of that, you know, Jesus has such the, is such a phenomenon that this excited and confused crowd is swarming around him and they're ready to revolt and make him king. They don't know what's going on here, but it's like, it's, a, it's just the end of the world for them, right? I mean, they, they wonder if Jesus has sort of this Messiah complex that he's gone off the deep end and for his own protection, for his own safety, and for his own sanity... They go and try to figure out what's going on. They go to seize him and to take him back home to Nazareth. But I think that there's more than just a concern for Jesus' safety here. Verse 21 says that when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. He's out of his mind. Right. You saw an angel and you're telling... Jesus, he's out of his mind. I, I don't know. They, so they came to seize him and capture him. They, they were willing to arrest him because they thought that he had developed this Messiah complex and it was going to get him killed. I mean, that's basically it. So it goes beyond this concern for health to a personal family desire to shut him up and take him home. Verse 31 tells us who came to get him. It was Jesus' mother and his brothers. I mean, it's not surprising that his brothers came to seize him because we know from John chapter 7 that his brothers originally didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was. It wasn't until his death and resurrection that they actually believed. They, they actually mocked him in John 7, thinking that he was just going to go get himself killed. But what about Mary? Who is this Mary here? An angel had appeared to you. You conceived as a virgin this son you saw the star over Bethlehem. You greeted the shepherds and the wise men. You sang your Magnificat. Yeah, I mean, just all these things happened. I mean, how could you say this? I mean, we get from Luke that she treasured these things up in her heart, but did she fully understand what she was doing? Did she fully understand what all this meant? Is she also questioning Jesus' sanity? And this is a big deal at the time because I said before that, that oftentimes when they think that somebody's out of their mind, they attribute that to demon possession. So is she really saying that she thinks that her son may be possessed by a demon? Mary is saying that? I do think that Mary was doubting here. I really do. Um, 
Though she did treasure all these things up in her heart, she was also promised when she went to the temple with Jesus as just an infant by Simeon that this child would be appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel for a sign that is opposed. And then Simeon turned to her and he said to her, And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed. Even as a baby, Simeon was promised, you are going to have to come to a decision on who Jesus is. Jesus' ministry will not only divide Israel, but will divide all mankind into two groups of people. Those who believe and those who do not. His, it's a sword of decision. It's a sword of judgment. And she herself will have to decide what she believes about Jesus. And she would be pained in knowing that the Messiah came not to unify her people as they'd so hoped, but to actually divide them. Divide them between believer and unbeliever. So she and her family, her loved ones, are put to sword point. They have to decide what they believe about Jesus. And this is a very less than honored state that Mary normally receives in many churches, right? She's not the God bearer here. But I think that it better explains the last part of that text. Mary herself was questioning who Jesus was, why He came, and what it means to follow Him. And we shouldn't really be surprised by that, because John the Baptist did the very same thing. Again, remember John the Baptist? Like We know from Luke... But while he was still in his his mother's womb, the Holy Spirit came upon them. And when the unborn Jesus came near to the unborn John, John leaps in his mother's womb. Right? This is John who was appointed before birth to be a prophet that prepares the way of the Lord. This is John who was faithfully proclaiming uh, repentance and faith and baptizing people out in the wilderness. And when Jesus came to be baptized, John saw the Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove. He heard the audible voice of God saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the same John that looked upon Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. But this is also the same John who sits in prison and sends his disciples to ask, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? If John the Baptist at, at one point doubts Jesus, then we shouldn't be surprised that Mary does as well. She doesn't hold an exalted position. She's not this Christ-bearer. Mary, like everyone else, must decide who Jesus is. Is he a lunatic? Is he a liar? Or is he Lord? Though we inevitably know that she and, her, and Jesus' brothers come to faith in Him for the moment, right here, they wonder... If he's out of his mind. And we don't believe that. Mark doesn't believe that. If Mark believed that, we wouldn't be reading what we're reading now. Alright? So Jesus is not a lunatic, but what about the other claim? Is he a liar? I mean, that's what the religious leaders believed. Verse 22 says that, And the scribes came down from Jerusalem, and they were, were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. This is the scribes came down from Jerusalem. They came down from Jerusalem because they came with an official edict. They, they have the Sanhedrin's position on who Jesus is. This guy casts out demons by the prince of demons. This guy is Satan. Instead, instead of 
seeing and all that he had done and, and hearing his teaching and determining that he was indeed the promised Messiah, the Son of God, they turned around and instead they concluded that he was possessed by Beelzebul. Now, Beelzebul is a funny Jewish play on words. It's, it's, um, it's actually a play from the word Beelzebub. Beelzebub was a pagan god that meant Lord of the High Places, right? And they changed the, the B sound to an L sound because if you do that, it now means basically Lord of the Dung Heap or Lord of the Flies that Swarm Around Manure and Carcasses. So it's just, it's meant to make fun of them. But over time, that those two names, Beelzebub and Beelzebul, began to be associated with Satan himself, Satan the Deceiver. The Lord of Flies, as he's mentioned elsewhere. And so to say that Jesus was possessed by Beelzebul, they were in effect saying that Jesus is a liar. He's possessed by the, the father of lies. The spirit within him is that of Satan. These are the works, these works are not God's works. These are the works of Satan himself. And again, this is not the conclusion of just a few scribes. This is an official position from the leaders of the the Jews of that day with regards to who Jesus is. I mean, we see this in, in repeated in Matthew 9, in Matthew 10, and in Matthew 12 as well. Over and over and over again, they're saying, this is what we've determined about Jesus. This is who He is. He's Satan Himself. They've sufficiently heard His teaching. They've seen His authority and His power displayed numerous times. And they could not deny that Jesus had supernatural authority. They couldn't question that. So what's it going to be? Is this authority from God or is this authority from somewhere else? Well, they, include, they, they concluded the latter. Rather than carefully searching Scripture and determining that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, the anointed one of God, they decided rather to attribute his power to Satan, to the lesser authority. The ironic thing in all of this is that the demons themselves had proclaimed that Jesus was the Son of God. I mean, think about how foolish that, that was. I mean, every time Jesus walks into the Sanhedrin, some guy falls down and he's proclaiming, I know who you are, Holy One of God. You are the Son of God. We've seen this repeatedly already in chapter 1 and then just last week in chapter 3, verse 11. This happens over and over and over again. These demons are confronted with Jesus and they affirm who He is. All that the Pharisees needed to do was take their word for it. Right? But instead they, they devised a different scheme. They were unwilling to attribute what they saw to the work of the Holy Spirit, but in, instead they presented an official edict that this man is casting out demons by the prince of demons. In verses 23 through 27, Jesus responds to them with two illustrations to prove that their accusations are false. One is of a kingdom or house divided, and the other is of a strong uh, of binding a strong man. He says he calls them to himself. He says, "Hey, fellas, you need to come over here." And they come up to him, and he says to them, "How can Satan cast out Satan? If kingdom is divided against itself, then that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house." is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. He's saying that 
He says first that a kingdom divided against itself in the middle of a civil war, it cannot stand. It's going to fall apart, and it is vulnerable to the attacks of other nations. I mean, Sudan. I mean, take this, for example. Sudan's been at war. They, they've been at civil war for 50 years, and it just completely decimated that country. You have north divided against south, and as the south struggled against the north, then you would see armies come in from Congo and renegade armies like the Lord's Liberation Army, the LRA, coming up from Uganda in the south and, and wreaking havoc all the way around. On all sides, Sudan was under attack. Um, and it eventually led to division, right? That, that now they've just had this vote. It's a good thing for southern Sudan trying to establish southern Sudan as a nation apart from northern Sudan. But if that country's desire was to be unified, if they wanted to be one united kingdom, then they certainly couldn't do it by dividing itself, by warring against itself. And he says this the same way with Satan. Listen, it makes no sense for Satan to put these demons in covert operations in the middle of synagogues throughout the places going unnoticed only for Satan to walk in, them fall down, him cast them out, and they're gone. They're going to wreak more havoc doing what they're doing. That doesn't make any sense. Same way with a house. If your house is divided, it's not really a family, is it? No matter how much you try or you say, you know, we're, we're united by blood, if your family is divided, it's not a family. A house divided of itself cannot and will not stand. Satan is not going to undo his work. He is going to do whatever means necessary to increase his house and his kingdom. Jesus' second illustration is another truism. It, if you're going to take the goods of a strong man, you have to first overcome that strong man. I mean, back in the good old days before he was a politician, nobody went into Arnold Schwarzenegger's house and took his stuff, right? I mean, you would have to be the Hulk to go up against Conan the Destroyer. I mean, seriously. I mean, that dude was ripped, right? And it's the same way. In this analogy, Satan is the strong man. And the only way you're going to be able to go against that strong man and overcome him is not just to be able to fight off his minions. You have to go against the whole kingdom. You have to go against Satan himself. You have to be stronger than that strong man. And Jesus is saying, I cast out demons because I have more power to remove them than Satan does to keep them there. Jesus claims that, he, that in his casting out demons, he proves that he has authority over Satan himself. We've already seen this in his temptation back in chapter 1. So if he's no lunatic, and he's not Satan, the liar and the deceiver, then he must be Lord. So then in verses 28 through 30, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man. But whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they had said he has an unclean spirit. Jesus says to them that there is such a thing as an eternal sin, a sin that is beyond the hope of repentance and forgiveness. And these scribes and Pharisees have just committed it. Well, what is that? What's the eternal sin? What does that look like? I'm sure that some of you maybe at one point in time kind of wondered about this, wondered if you have fallen prey to that kind of thing, you know. So what is it? Well, it's mentioned elsewhere in Scripture. 
For example, Hebrews 6, 4 through 6. It says, For it is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding Him up to contempt. That's a very important word. It says, One can be near. They can participate in all the blessings of the gospel and then turn around and hold Jesus in contempt. They hate Him. They hate Christ. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 through 29, it says, For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who sets aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse the punishment, do you think, will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which He was sanctified and outraged the Spirit of grace? What he's saying here is one can willfully deliberately, openly sin after hearing the truth. They are spurning. That means despising and disdaining the Son of God and outraging the Spirit of grace. And another example is Mark, uh, not Mark, First uh, John 5 speaks that there is a sin that can lead to death, the idea of, of eternal punishment. So there is such, this, such a thing as this unforgivable sin. But what is it really? Well, one, it's not simply blasphemy, okay? Um, Paul himself said in 1 Timothy 1, I thank Him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because He judged me faithful, appointing me to His service, though I formerly was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. An insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He says that his blasphemy was, was not unforgivable because he acted in ignorance, in unbelief. Nor is eternal sin one that can only be committed against Jesus during his lifetime. I mean, Hebrews and, and 1 John were written after Jesus had ascended. So it can't just be to Jesus personally. The eternal sin is not simply that unbelief that continues until the time of death. Just like perpetual unbelief, the result is judgment. Now that's clearly true, right? All those who fail to put their faith and hope in Christ will be judged forever. But this is speaking of something more. This is, this is speaking of, um, of, Jesus, of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and Hebrews speaks of this willful contempt against Christ, this deep hatred of Christ. So it goes over and above just unbelief. This eternal sin is also not apostasy in the sense that someone is truly born again and then later turns around and rejects Christ, turns around and hates Christ. I mean, this is a belief by some, but... Uh, and it's a longer argument than I can make here, but Scripture proves time and time again that God will complete the work that He began in Christ. So if God is at work in you, He will bring it to completion. 
and that those who seemed to walk away from the faith and die, they were never truly believers. This concept of eternal sin in the Bible is far more than any of those. Now remember, these religious leaders spent their lives studying God's Word. They were looking longingly in anticipation for God's Messiah. And so they would have studied carefully all the passages that promised this coming Messiah of how He would heal the sick, He would cause the blind to see, He would cause the the mute to speak and the deaf to hear, how the lame would leap for joy, how he would, he would free those who have been imprisoned by demons. All these things that he would teach with authority, speak the very words of God over and over and over again. They had promise after promise after promise after promise that Jesus has proven himself over and over and over and over and over again. They had sufficient truth. They had it. They knew what it was. They heard but yet they rejected it. They, they refused to acknowledge that Jesus was fulfilling all that God had promised. I mean, they saw the miracles. They heard Jesus speak with authority. They stood amazed in the crowd. They saw Jesus' life, how He lived in absolute dependence day after day after day on the Holy Spirit, that in Him there was no sin. They saw all this. They had sufficient Evidence, his every attitude was in complete obedience to God. And so in Matthew's account of this confrontation, Jesus adds when he says to them, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. It's here. It's now. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. He's basically saying, you need to decide right now who I am and what I'm about. This is the point. If I am who I say I am, if I am who I am proving that I am, then you have to make a decision because the kingdom is here now. And are you going to be for it or are you going to be against it? If, I am, if I'm not, then cast me out as a demon, as a liar. But if I am, then you need to submit because I'm Lord. I'm King. Jesus is challenged them right here. They have to decide right now by whose power He does these things. And the Pharisees and their hatred of Him and how they are, He's leading people away from their authority, away from their exalted position, determined that Jesus was Satan Himself and that He blasphemed the whole, and they blasphemed the Holy Spirit that worked so powerfully through Him. So, back to the question about the eternal sin. This goes beyond unbelief or rejection of Christ. It includes a clear and sufficient knowledge of who the Christ is and the power of the Holy Spirit, a willful rejection of the facts about Jesus that they knew to be true, and a slanderous and slanderously attributing the work of the Holy Spirit to the power of Satan. Louis Burkhoff defines it this way, the eternal sin consists in the conscious, malicious, and willful rejection and slander against the evidence and conviction of the testimony of the Holy Spirit respecting the grace of God in Christ, attributing it out of hatred and enmity to the prince of darkness. In committing that sin willfully, maliciously, and intentionally, 
attributes what is clearly recognized as the work of God to the influence and operation of Satan. It consists, it consists not in doubting the truth, nor in a sinful denial of the truth, but in a contradiction of it that goes contrary to the conviction of mind, to the illumination of the conscious, and even to the verdict of the heart. This, my friends, is true apostasy. This is what apostasy looks like in the Bible. All right, this is not just unbelief. This is not just being near to the truths of Scripture, near to the gospel, and never re- believing it and walking away from it. This is enmity. This is hatred. And this is, this is saying that what they're doing is satanic. That is apostasy. So if you're sitting here and you're afraid that maybe you've committed that same sort of apostasy or maybe somebody you know is guilty of an eternal sin, you know, if you if anyone has experienced any sort of remorse over their sin, you know, a, a godly sorrow, a, des- a desire to to repent and believe, then there's hope, right? Uh, there's hope for them. There's hope for you. There, they can, there's still time for you to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And so this leads to the third option then. If Jesus isn't crazy and He isn't a liar, then Jesus must be Lord. He must be. In verses 31 and 32, Mark returns back to talking about Jesus' physical family. Remember, in, up there in 20 and 21, they came to, from Nazareth to seize Jesus because they thought that He was out of His mind. Now, after this brief caveat of Jesus dealing with these scribes and their edict that, and blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, he's now come back to look at them again. They're standing outside this crowded house and they're waiting to see Jesus. It says, And his mother and his brothers came and they were standing outside and they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Now we know for sure who is coming for Jesus, and we have no reason again to expect that Mary's intentions were any different than that of his brothers. We have no reason to suspect that Mary didn't also wonder if Jesus was out of his mind. This is another one of Mark's sandwiches, where he tries to he tells one story within another story, right? Um, And so what he's telling in the middle is of great weight and has effect, has bearing on the two outside stories. <clears throat> and so, you know, he started with Jesus' family. He broke off. He talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Now he's returned back, and they're outside of the house. And as I said before, you know, he does this intentionally. Mary and Jesus' brothers are not given spe- special status here. Though they are his family, they and by nature insiders, where are they located positionally with Jesus? Right here. They're on the outside, Right? And this is one of the ironies of Mark that you see over and over again. Those who should be inside are outside, and those who are outside are welcomed inside. You see this over and over and over again. <clears throat> I think that Mark, given Mark's teaching tool, that they're really he's trying to show us that there really aren't three options at all. There's only two decisions you can come to. Jesus' family is not excused because they think that he's got a couple of screws loose. You know, that's the, actual, the idea of lunacy is not an option. 
right? Especially given the fact that in that day they thought that to be out of your mind was to be demon-possessed. That leaves two options, that he's a liar from hell or that he's Lord. And I think that that is what Mark is trying to drive at. There's no privileged possession position here. Not even Jesus' mother can get by without coming to a definitive conclusion on who Jesus is. Either he's Lord or he's something far worse. But both options have eternal consequences. And they have to come to that conclusion. Notice that they're standing really close to where the Pharisees had just determined. The Pharisees had looked at what all that Jesus had done. They'd seen all of that. They'd heard His teaching. And then they had determined that He was Satan Himself. And Mary and, and her sons are on the verge of that. They've got to come to terms with the reality of who Jesus is. Fortunately for us, we know that the end result, right? We know the answer. We know from Acts 1.14 that along with a number of other passages that they came to repent and believe that Jesus was Savior and Lord. What's amazing is that James, the brother of Jesus, more than likely one of them here, would become the leader of the church in Jerusalem. And in his letter, the epistle of James that we have in our New Testament, he calls himself a slave of Jesus. Calls himself a slave. Jude, one of the other brothers, also a New Testament writer, calls Jesus Master and Lord. And in humility, he doesn't even refer to himself as the brother of Jesus, but instead refers to himself as the brother of James. Jesus' own family stood as outsiders until they came to recognize and submit themselves to Jesus as Lord. That's how one becomes a part of the inside. And that's Jesus' response there in verses 33 through 35. His physical family, he answers them by saying that true allegiance to him results in a new spiritual family. I mean, again, look at the text. He says, He answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who stand around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my mother, he is my brother and sister and mother. My true mother, brother, and sister are those who do the will of God, my father. That is my true family. That is my ultimate family. My family, the family of God, is not drawn by bloodlines. It's not drawn by exalted family positions or some sort of hierarchy, but in a desire to obey the very will of God, my Father. That is what makes us a family. That is what it's all about. Obedience to the will of God is to receive and follow Jesus for who He proves Himself to be. Obedience to follow and reflect Christ results then in being part of His true family, part of His body, part of His church. You are added to the new family, to a new people of God. Your obedience means that you will become a part of a church. But here's the irony of it. Obedience results in the church. The church is then required for obedience. You see how this works. It's absolutely necessary. It's absolutely vital. Not only in your obedience are you added to the church, but you need to be a part of the church, invested in the church, giving your life to the church as you would to your brother and your sister and your mother because that's how you grow. 
Not standing on the outside, not attending, not just kind of consuming and looking at it, but really investing in it, being a part of it, looking across the aisles at one another and seeing a brother and sister and that meaning more to you than your own natural sibling. That's what it's talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what it means to follow Jesus as Lord. Time out. Just stop doing this. <laughs> but, but this is the reality of it. You know, um, this idea that we can claim Jesus as our Lord and we can act in obedience and in faith and, and not be a part of the church, can we do that? No. You can do it for a while, but the reality is you're acting in disobedience. And if you're acting in disobedience to the will of God, is Jesus really your Lord? The answer there is an emphatic no. Absolutely not. Mark gives us this account to force us to a decision. Mother, brother, Pharisee, crowd, follower alike. Who is Jesus? Is He Lord or is He something else? And if He is Lord, then we are obligated to submit ourselves to Him and to the will of God. In whatever way that looks. And that includes, I think here, the church. We can talk more about that. It's a big deal. I love the church. But I started with a quote from C.S. Lewis, and that's where I'm going to end. He says that we are faced then with a frightening alternative. This man we are talking about either was and is just what he said, or else a lunatic or something worse. Now, it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. God has landed on his enemy-occupied world in human form. So, friends, let's not dismiss him as a teacher. Let's not think of him as a savior only. We must view him as he is, Lord. But each of you have to decide. Is Jesus your Lord? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this challenge that Jesus has given us. That we cannot dismiss him. That we cannot um, relegate him to any one part of our lives. That we can't just want to follow his example because he's a good guy. That we can't just dismiss him as being somebody that's got a few screws loose or even worse, that he's a liar. God, I pray that each one of us would examine our hearts and minds right now or to see if there's any doubt within us. That we would examine to see, are, are we really living as if Jesus is Lord? Because he is. He's, he's proven himself so many times as we've looked at this, at Mark and, and how he's described. We've seen it in our lives. Our, our friends and family and, and our church has bared witness to the fact that Jesus is Lord. And I pray that we would not just let those be words. But that would be the song of our hearts. That we would willingly lay ourselves down and follow Christ because He is who He says He is. He is who He proves Himself to be. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.